0: This is Monday Morning QB, June 21st, 2021. I'm Askia Muhammad. Today on the show, hot enough for you? There's new evidence that not everyone feels heat the same way. Young men and women in Southeast DC are finding a new route to prosperity, the construction trades. And racial discrimination even and temporary hiring. All that and more, stay with us. Today in Las Vegas, the Mercury is expected to climb to 109 degrees. Definitely hot, but still some relief from a record-breaking heat wave that gripped much of the western United States last week. Several cities reported their hottest weather on record earlier this year. Las Vegas recorded a high temperature of 116 last Wednesday, breaking the record of 114 for that date. And on Thursday, Phoenix hit a record-breaking high of 118 degrees with climate scientists warning that such extremes will become more common in cities across the globe. There's new evidence, though, that not everyone will feel the heat in the same way.
1: According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, excessive heat is responsible for the most weather-related fatalities in the United States during an average year, making it even more deadly than tornadoes and hurricanes. It's long been established that cities bear the brunt of extreme heat, but even within a single city, some neighborhoods are hotter than others. New research examines how that breaks down along socioeconomic lines, and among the findings is that on average, people of color live in the hottest part of town in most U.S.
2: cities. Yeah, so in broad stroke, we found that in nearly every single urban area in the in the U.S., so in 97% of U.S. cities with a population over 250,000 people of color are disproportionately exposed to higher levels of urban heat than their white counterparts.
1: That's Angel Shu, Assistant Professor of Public Policy and the Environment at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill where she is also director and founder of the Data-Driven Environmental Policy Lab. Back in May, she and co-authors Glenn Sheriff, Tirthankar Chakraborty, and Diego Manya published a study in the journal Nature Communications. It's titled Disproportionate Exposure to Urban Heat Island Intensity Across Major U.S. Cities. Using satellite temperature data combined with demographic information from the U.S. Census, they looked at 175 cities across the United States and were able to measure who is more likely to live in hotter places within those cities. Earlier research has already shown that heat exposure can vary by race and ethnicity in some cities, but what this new research reveals is how extensive those disparities really are.
2: That's correct. It's not concentrated in any single part of the country, literally virtually everywhere. So only six out of the 175 major cities, we didn't find this pattern. But it was because there are just not that many people of color living in those areas. And so this was a pattern that we found widespread and pervasive all across the United States. And I think that was probably one of the most surprising findings for me. At the core
1: of these disparities in exposure to heat, and to understanding how to address them, is what's known as the urban heat island effect. It describes what happens specifically in neighborhoods with a shortage of green space and a concentration of paved surfaces that absorb and radiate heat.
2: The phrase urban heat island is simply just the temperature difference between an urban area and a non-urban area. And so it's a really good policy-relevant measure of heat because it tells us how much a city or a built environment is hotter than it would be if it weren't an urban environment, if it weren't a city. And so that gives you a sense of what policymakers and urban planners might have direct control over.
1: The research by Angel Shu and her colleagues confirms some of what is already known about urban heat islands, which is they tend to occur in the poorest neighborhoods. But they also found the average person of color is exposed to more heat island intensity than an average person living in poverty, meaning that racial disparities in heat exposure cannot be explained by income levels alone.
2: But what we saw is that that's actually not explaining the full picture, because even though only 10% of uh, the population of people of color actually live below the poverty line, we're still seeing that 97% of cities are exposing these communities of color to higher levels of heat. And so income is not explaining what's going on. Uh, so it's clearly evidence of something more systemic going on in terms of, of other variables like uh, race and ethnicity.
1: Angel Shu and her colleagues do not delve deeply into what these systematic issues are, but they do acknowledge what they call the effect of historical practices of real estate urban development and planning policies that promoted spatial and racial segregation in U.S. cities. As just one example, they reference a recent study that examined the ongoing impact of the racist policy of redlining dating back to the 1930s. That study found that formerly redlined neighborhoods are still hotter than other parts of the same cities today.
2: So these were discriminatory lending practices that prevented um, people of color from accessing financial loans that would have given them access to living in higher uh, property value areas. But it's all of these these drivers that we need to be uh, doing more research on to actually uh, really being able to pin down precisely what's going on. And so I think our study is the first step to really um, effectively establishing these links. But we can only make these observations at this point of time and then suggest the wider implication.
1: Even as scientists continue to explore how these disparities in heat exposure evolved over time, and why they continue today, one thing does remain clear. That urban heat stress poses a major risk to public health. As stated at the outset of this story, extreme heat is already the deadliest weather-related disaster in the United States. Yet its impact on health and well-being is even broader than that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a number of of health implications. Uh, It can be related to comorbidities. And so if people have diabetes, for example, or um, they have other types of underlying health conditions, the heat could exacerbate those and result in um, other types of health complications. And then heat strokes, that's a real thing, and people die every year, particularly in in elderly populations over 65. It's one of the most common contributors to uh, early mortality in those age groups. And then one other thing that I think people also don't think about is just the day-to-day impact of heat. I was just speaking with a collaborator who's based in Germany today, and she said, that the temperature was 36 degrees Celsius and they don't have air conditioning in many cities in Europe and she said I'm sorry I'm having a hard time concentrating so loss of productivity and having trouble concentrating and there's been studies that have shown that students and young people don't learn as well when they're hot when they're exposed to heat
1: So what are the next steps? As attention builds on how to better protect everyone from heat island exposure there is significant focus on nature-based solutions that can increase the amount of green space in affected neighborhoods. Actions such as planting trees in low-income and minority neighborhoods have been shown to reduce summertime afternoon temperatures by as much as 1.5 degrees Celsius. And, as Angel Shu explains, the benefits go even beyond that
2: really a hot topic in the climate solution space right now is, is how can we increase uh, tree cover and shade in order to cool these parts of the city which have a number of co-benefits when you plant trees. They also produce more oxygen, they filter out harmful air pollutants, green spaces uh, encourage social cohesion and public safety, for example, and so there are all a number of, of these types of co-benefits.
1: Of course, closing the gap on these disparities hardly stops at trees. Angel Shoe says it's also about dealing with the larger legacy of racist policies such as redlining that not only encouraged segregation but also a lack of overall investment in neighborhoods that only serves to further their segregation even to this day.
2: How do we actually invest more in these communities that have been historically deinvested and and how can what can we do in a holistic sense to uh, improve these communities, to make these communities more diverse, and to attract different communities, and to invest in them, to, to just bring them up to the same level as as wealthier communities.
1: Taking all that into consideration, Angel Schuss says there is no one-size-fits-all solution to urban heat island management, and that you have to consider where you are and what's feasible. But what she does hope is that the kind of data provided in this new study and by the ongoing work she is doing at the University of North Carolina will provide the tools to do that.
2: Yeah, so I mean, I think the number one goal, and this is the whole philosophy of my research group that I founded, the Data-Driven Environmental Policy Lab, is to first of all be aware of the data and to utilize the data as a first step to then thinking about what kinds of policy interventions and what kinds of actions can be taken on the ground to address these disparities. And so that's where I see the biggest role for data is to make the invisible visible and to actually shed light for both the public and urban planners and policymakers to say, hey, look, this isn't just a fluke. It's not just anecdotal. When there are communities of color that are saying, look, this is a problem, we're hot and we're getting sick and we're disproportionately experiencing these health outcomes, then they now have the data to back it up. Whereas, as as we know, policymakers often only respond when they have the hard evidence in front of them. And so this is giving them, it's empowering them with the information to hopefully take that next step to make a difference.
1: Angel Shu, Assistant Professor of Public Policy and the Environment at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill where she is also director and founder of the Data-Driven Environmental Policy Lab. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin.
0: Juneteenth greetings to one and all. This is the immortal Sam Cook.
3: change gonna come. Oh, yes it will. I go to the movie and I go downtown. Somebody keep telling me don't hang around. It's been Help me please But he winds up But I know a change come. Oh, yes, it will.
0: America reemerged on the world stage last week, with President Biden traveling to Europe for successive summits with the G seven, NATO and Russian President Vladimir Putin. The return to -to face-to-face diplomacy was met with much fanfare, but the summits did not result in many new actions by world leaders. Instead, the meetings revealed how Western powers are positioning themselves in the face of the seismic shift in geopolitical power away from the United States. Reporter Chris Banger Drowns
4: as more. Almost 30 years after the alleged end of history, Western democracies are still struggling for relevance and dominance in an increasingly multipolar world. This reality was laid bare last week during Biden's appearances in Europe, where he urged unity among the West in the face of burgeoning Eastern powers, namely China. But will this effort to present a united front succeed? John Pfeffer is an author and director of Foreign Policy in Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies. He explains how the United States has damaged its standing for decades through a practice of a la carte multilateralism.
5: A la carte multilateralism is something that really emerged during the Clinton years. And this was a kind of response to the end of the Cold War, a kind of redefinition of U.S. role in the world. There was an expectation, of course, that the United States would um, play well with others to a certain extent uh, after the confrontation with the Soviet Union. And to a certain extent, yes, uh, under Bill Clinton, the United States did become more engaged in, in multilateralism, but it did so in an a la carte fashion. In other words, Uh, it decided when it wanted to do multilateralism and when it didn't want to do multilateralism. In other words, multilateralism when it could and unilateralism when it had to. So, for instance, even though uh, Clinton himself was more or less enthusiastic about the International Criminal Court, Congress was not, well, Senate under Jesse Helms was not. The United States would endorse certain multilateral institutions, but otherwise uh, would not, if it felt that those institutions were acting not in U.S. national interest. So that's essentially the concept of a la carte multilateralism. And, and we, we saw the U.S. move more towards unilateralism, say, under George W. Bush, move back towards a kind of a la carte multilateralism under Obama, uh, towards an industrial strength version of uh, unilateralism under, under Donald Trump, and a reversion in a certain sense to where we were in the Obama administration with respect to multilateralism under Biden. Although I would argue that in some sense, Joe Biden is, is perhaps a little bit more um, multilateralism positive than, uh, than even Obama was. And so there has been maybe a step forward in that direction.
4: You know, Biden during the G7 summit last weekend stated several times, and maybe several times a day, that America is back, the United States is back. But given this volatility in U.S. foreign policy that you just discussed, how confident do you think U.S. allies are in this ostensible return of America to the global stage? I mean, are we seen as a reliable ally after Trump?
5: I think at a rhetorical level, there's a great deal of enthusiasm because I think global leaders realize that the United States needs uh, positive reinforcement, <laughs> you know, like a, a pet that hitherto was... Uh, pissing all over the floor and and suddenly it stopped pissing over the floor. So you you gotta give it a a round of applause. So that's rhetorically, but I think there is a great deal of skepticism um, in closed meetings that take place in Europe. And I think that the United States really has been identified as an unreliable superpower, a superpower that is unpredictable in its actions, not necessarily from day to day, although that could happen, but more over the medium to long term. And basically other countries are going to hedge their bets in case the United States does something crazy. Uh, I mean, it's the same thing you would experience with investment strategies. You hedge your bets in case the stock market plunges. So you distribute your, your assets in, in a more diversified manner. So I think countries are diversifying their portfolio, so to speak, when it comes to foreign policy. And you see that, for example, with the European Union signing an agreement, an important economic agreement with China or the European Union uh, developing an independent um, military capacity in case the United
4: States decides that NATO is no longer a useful tool of US policy. So the, the NATO summit was the second big summit last week uh, and the communique that came out of that one day summit explicitly names China in addition to Russia as a threat to the alliance. And this this mention of China seems relatively new given that Russia has traditionally been the arch adversary of NATO. In 2018, you wrote that NATO is obsolescent in part because there's no major counterweight to NATO like the Warsaw Pact. And I'm curious if you still feel that way. Does, does expanding the alliance focus to include China reverse NATO's decline to obsolescence? Uh, well,
5: certainly NATO would like to believe that. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure however, well, whether that's objectively true. You know, NATO has been in search of mission, you know, ever since the Warsaw Pact uh, collapsed. And, you know, to a certain extent, there were internal challenges that emerged that sharpened NATO's reason for being, like the war in Yugoslavia, obviously the conflict in Ukraine. NATO also developed this kind of -of out-of-area operations competence so that it could operate outside of Europe. It... Developed a competence, uh, at least according to itself, in dealing with humanitarian issues, um, has considered environmental questions. I mean, all these kind of ways for NATO to reinvent itself. I think this recent summit has focused things more on what, in particular, the United States considers its major security challenge, which is China. I mean yeah the United States is worried about uh, Russia, its nuclear weapons, its uh, dealings with its near abroad ukraine, Georgia, et cetera but ultimately China is the the looming challenge to the United States economically and militarily, and it behooves the United states to <laughs> to make that the kind of central focus of NATO, even if it doesn't really make much sense. I mean, for the most part, you know China's focused certainly on its in its security questions on its own borders its dealings with europe have been primarily economic the eu has vested economic interests in preserving its economic relationship with china so i think rhetorically yeah uh, nato is shifting to a certain extent to addressing china and china as a non-territorial threat But I'm not sure if it will really restructure NATO operations per se. It may be similar to many of these other previous efforts at finding mission, that it serves effectively uh, at a rhetorical level, but uh, it doesn't really
4: shift NATO in an operational sense. The final summit last week was, of course, the big one, the meeting between Biden and Putin, and a number of issues were addressed, none of which were concretely committed to. But cybersecurity was one of the, the big ones that was addressed. And Biden made it clear that there was some red lines, right? He he said that the U.S. will retaliate if Russia-based hackers target critical infrastructure in the United States. And just to take a step back, I mean, the, the United States has dominated the world through military might for the last half century or so. And I'm curious what the introduction of highly potent cyber warfare means for US hegemony. In other words, is this, is this a new battlefield available for the United States to also conquer and control? Uh,
5: unfortunately, yes. Um... Unfortunately, also, in many ways, the United States was kind of the leading force in uh, introducing cyber warfare, uh, and not just cyber intrusions, but but actual cyber warfare with the Stuxnet worm that was introduced into Iran's nuclear industry to make its spinning cyclotrons you know, spin out of control. You know that was something that was a new innovation. I mean, previously, we had cyber intrusions that affected computers. But this actually went beyond the computer. It went to the actual infrastructure that the computers were controlling. And that was an innovation. And it very quickly spread to other parts of the world. I mean, the Stuxnet worm itself spread to other parts of the world. And that was a principle, a new principle in in warfare. I mean, you you launch a missile, it lands on a particular piece of infrastructure, and that's it. I mean, maybe there's a fire, maybe there's you know some some collateral, what they call collateral damage, but it doesn't like end up seven hundred miles away, destroying a, a manufacturing facility in Australia. But with cyber warfare, this stuff goes all over the place. So one can make an argument very clearly that controls on uh, cyber warfare are necessary not just because of, uh, of an arms race and the potential of an arms race, but also because of the fact that your own weapons are going to boomerang against you. So it's in your interest to actually put some controls on this. Putin has proposed controls both at an international level and at a bilateral level in the past. I have really gone very far with the United States. I mean, the United States, I think, for a period of time, believed that it had an edge in this regard I and mean, it didn't want to put any uh, limits on, on its, its cyber hegemony. But it's clear now that the United States is no longer kind of the leader of the pack. And uh, I think there's a greater willingness. I think both sides recognize that this is, this is A, something important, and B,
4: something that actually can be done. Those are lots of my prepared questions we've we've talked about a lot, but I want to give you a chance to provide closing thoughts if you have any. Well,
5: I think the only closing thought I have would be on kind of the environmental issues. And, and certainly with a big environmental meeting coming up uh, in Glasgow in the fall, countries led in some sense by the United States and European countries to commit to a net zero approach a commitment to, uh, at least according to their communique, an environmentally sustainable global kind of infrastructure push. Unfortunately, all of that is often predicated on excluding China rather than including China. And part of it is simply because uh, China and, and the rest of the world don't necessarily see eye to eye on environmental issues and climate change questions. Uh, but more significantly, perhaps, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative is seen as an economic challenge, and that China is kind of establishing itself as the preeminent economic power in the world. In other words, there's a great deal of anxiety, particularly in the United States, but also in Europe and any country that is aligned with the United States, that China will acquire enormous economic power globally and will rewrite the rules of global economy in ways that do not advantage western powers and so uh, a lot of this response to china you know in terms of uh, the build back better world infrastructure proposal or some of the environmental approaches blue dot network etc are deliberately designed to kind of contain china's economic ambitions The problem in terms of environmental questions is that in this kind of critical period of time when we really need to have everybody on board and in agreement on how to cut carbon emissions rapidly, there's a a pretty big gulf between the United States in particular and China. And the Biden administration, despite its often very good rhetoric on reducing carbon emissions, this is its blind spot. And unfortunately, these meetings, the G7, Uh, in particular, uh, really expose that blind spot more perhaps in any recent multilateral confab.
4: That's John Pfeffer, author and director of Foreign Policy in Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies. Find out more about his work by visiting ips-dc.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris (laughs) Bengert-Drowns.
0: The groundbreaking program in Southeast D.C. is providing young would-be troublemakers exposure instead to high-paying careers in the construction trades industries. Unlike public schools, United Planning Organizations, Building Careers Academy is a place where young recruits can earn certification for work in the construction trades. Kenneth Carroll is an education coach with UPO's Building Careers Academy.
6: The workforce um, training division of UPO uh, is tasked with providing free certification opportunities to uh, youth and adults uh, that will provide them with the skill sets in order to have... Uh, productive careers. So
0: what's the difference between this and college?
6: Uh, the difference is that it's free. That's the first big difference. And the second difference is that students leave with what they call career ready skills. And so the, uh, the workshops tend to be between 12 and 36 weeks. And, uh, upon certification, completion and certification, uh, UPO workforce division continues to work with them. Uh, we have something called workforce development and we have case managers whose job it is to place students into a job position and to work with them on, their skill set, so things like resume, uh, interviewing skills, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, we even provide clothing for people who don't have appropriate clothing for interviews. Um, we will provide uh, bus fares, subway uh, cards for people who need to be able to get to and from the work site when they first begin.
0: What's the difference between the UPO Building Careers Academy and say, McKinley Tech High School or Phelps uh, public
6: schools? The difference is that uh, UPO as a nonprofit, well, it's actually what's called a community action agency. They have the ability to work with students beyond say, the academic scope of school. So if you t- attended McKinley or Phelps, you're probably not going to get um, case management after high school, uh, so you're probably not going to be able to participate in career skills uh, programs or whether that's the resume building, the interviewing process. In addition, UPO, as the largest community action agency, in the city uses its um contacts and partnerships uh with uh construction companies, uh local agencies, jobs in those fields. How about
0: attitudes? Does this help with attitudes for young people in terms of is this reason enough to not follow the thug life.
5: Right. So what's interesting
6: is I've got a bunch of kids in my program who have been referred by either the court system or Department of Youth Rehabilitation Services, which means, you know, they were in the either Oak Hill or some other youth facility. And, you know, they have, you know, a court appointed uh manager probation officer or something like that that's helping to you know manage their probation or parole. Uh and what I can say about those kids who have participated with us so far is they have been stellar. I mean those are the kids who walk up to you and say, I never knew about this. I didn't think I'd like it. So whether it's plumbing or electrical, or uh, working in broadband communication, just introducing them to these options has opened a lot of their eyes about what's possible. Uh, In addition, we have instructors uh, who, you know, uh, two of my instructors, you know, born and raised in DC, and they tell them like, look, the economics of hustling does not favor you, right? And so and I you know, I introduced them to the uh to the study from the book Freakonomics that said, How come most, most drug sellers live in their mother's basement? Um, and we point out that look, when you factor in arrests, possible death, and the little bit of change you can make from hustling, uh it's really not a viable career, you know? What I'm seeing is at least stated attitudes that seem to be changing. So when students walk up and say, I never thought about that that way, um, you know, you begin to see, you know, just like it's not necessarily that you won't know until your the students are in your program and they have to come to get certification regularly you'll see that change behavior right now. I'm hearing, you know, that they are are learning some stuff that they didn't know before, right? Presented in a way, like I said, my instructors are very blunt and direct with them and honest and talk about their own experiences on the streets of DC and how getting a skill changed that, um, I'm sure you've heard the
0: comparisons to mm-hmm. Booker T. Washington kind of cast down your yeah. bucketism. Right, right, right. Is it an issue? Do people worry that, be, they, that they be seen as Bama's uh, or hayseeds
6: or, or country bumpkins? No, or- no, no. Uh-uh. That, that doesn't even come into their mind. Their whole thing is about, wait a minute, if you're saying like we – like when they first started, I had to do a presentation to get them to sign up. I showed them the Bureau of Labor Statistics averages for the four careers we were we are interested in them getting into, and we showed where you know the average starting salary is about fifty k They couldn't even process fifty k like we had to do the math about how that would come in, what it would look like, and what you'd be able to purchase if you were a person who had a job making 50000 which is the low end, of, well, it's about the middle, but the low end of electrician, plumber, and broadband communication, and then professional building maintenance is about the middle. And so, you know, we were just, for them, it was just like, wait a minute, This can happen, and we're like saying, let's say you only made 50,000 a year for a decade, beginning at age 22, you would have made a half million dollars, you know, in that time. And then, you know, our instructors are also, um, they're also freelance, um, you know, consultants, some, uh, some have their own businesses, and they talk about, so, you know, I make a salary here, with UPO and then I have a business that nets me an extra $60,000 a year and I only do that on the weekend. You know, so it's about getting, about seeing another way and hearing it from people that there's another way that you can do this. Doesn't require two or four years of college, right? It just requires, cause most of them and most of these students, uh, you know, are turned off about the prospect of, Uh, more academics, (laughs) you know. um, So finally,
0: the shame of manual labor is being worn away for young people in Southeast D.C.
6: Yeah, I mean, I don't think, see, I think the problem we had, I don't think there was ever an issue about shame of manual labor. It was that the, the, the prospect of preparation for that skilled labor was not really apparent to them. You know what I mean? Like, they thought it was going to have to be college. Because like I said to them, I said, have you ever talked to a person on a construction site and find out what that background is? And, you know, people said no. Um... And so I'm, I'm actually having people come in, like people I knew and grew up with who left high school, got into a union apprentice program, and, you know, ended up making $100,000 working 30 years at the Pentagon, you know, as a building maintenance professional. And, you know, they were like, what? ever heard of that, you know? Um, and so, yeah, so I don't think the stigma of it I do think there's an issue about, um, there's an issue about whether or not you have the people in your life who can marshal you through the work that's needed here. So I can see now that's going to be part of my struggle with some of the youth because even for my program, which is only on Saturday at 10 a.m., you know, I'll get the mom calling me like, well, you know he, he he couldn't wake up, but I'm like, why are you there then? you know uh <laughs> you know and and see, I don't let them do that. You signed up for this program. I'm gonna be checking up on you, you know, and you're supposed to be here at ten, ten fifteen, you're not here, Obviously, you don't get paid, but see what happens is we have a culture of parents who are fine with children who are broke sitting on the couch playing video games and until that changes uh, you know it's going to be difficult you can do it and so I have to work as much with the parents as I do with the students you know I had a parent call me today and said my son didn't come but can he still get the money I said H- hell no <laughs> I mean but who asked, who asked a question like that you know unless they already got issues yeah.
0: You know. Well, thank you Kenneth Carroll from yes, U- UPO for helping us face our issues.
6: Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed.
0: <laughs> Kenneth Carroll is also a poet. His reputation as a performer is well established. Back in 2008, he read Snooky Johnson at the Split This Rock Poetry Festival.
7: This is called Snooky Johnson Goes Down to the Recruiter's Office near Benning Road and starts some s <laughs> It was right about the time they started drafting for the Iraq War. Snooky came to sign up, but he, didn't, but he didn't walk through the door. Instead, he leaped like a madman right through the plate glass and kicked the recruiting sergeant square in his no-good ass. He said, I want to go to the desert, kill me some Arab chump. Drink his hot blood like water from a barnyard pump. I want to get bit on my nose by a scorpion with a bad attitude. I want to smoke 12 packs a day and eat snake heart for food. I want to drink poison gas with a side order of sand and dance with a nuclear missile while digging a go-go band. I want to jump in an oil well and get real slick, then have me a party with one of them Muslim chicks. 'Cause I'm Snooky Johnson from a bad neighborhood, and when I get psyched up, I don't mean nobody no good. So sign me up, sergeant, and sign me up fast. I'm just raring to kick me some <laughs> ass. The sergeant looked at Snooky with nothing but disgust, knowing he was the kind of fella can't nobody trust. You do that? You too damn crazy for the military. The Sarge said with a frown. Snooky handed him a piece of paper and said, Yo, baby, write that down.
0: (laughs) Our final story this morning takes us to Chicago, where temp workers have long accused bosses of blatant discrimination and retaliation. New research. Confirms this reality and presents opportunities to heal the racial schism built by employers. Chris Banger Drowns reports.
4: Brittany Scott is a senior research strategist at Partners for Dignity and Rights, an advocacy organization devoted to advancing economic and social rights. Recent research she authored in collaboration with the Equal Rights Center has made concrete what Chicago temp workers already know too well. Black workers are turned away from jobs at disproportionate rates, and workers who do find jobs are exploited. But what makes this research novel isn't its findings, but rather the data collection process itself. Brittany Scott's study used a tactic called matched pairs testing, where volunteers of different races are paired up so that age, work history, and other non-racial characteristics are virtually indistinguishable, the pairs then go to temp hiring centers looking for work and compare experiences.
8: Our matched pairs were with one black job applicant and one Latinx job applicant, and we did that for a couple of reasons. Members of these groups make up most of the people applying for jobs in this industry. Over eighty percent in the Chicago area. And there's just been a, a mounting abundance of anecdotal evidence. There's been investigative journalism and, and some litigation popping up over the last few years that really suggests that staff agencies are engaging in racial discrimination.
4: Will Evans, a journalist with the Center for Investigative Reporting, wrote in 2016 about how temp agencies use explicitly racist language as well as barely-coded words to communicate with client companies about their workforce needs some agencies simply use numbers to designate racial identity with Latinx workers referred to as code 3 for example
8: they're also doing it in terms of gender they're asking for heavy ones or light ones meaning men or women and all of this you know what we've found limits black workers access to jobs and it's also we think an exercise and an unlawful preference for Latinx workers that they perceived to be more vulnerable due to perception of likely undocumented immigration status.
4: Brittany Scott's research reveals more about the racial discrimination uncovered by Will Evans's reporting.
8: Black workers received just three job offers to every four that were offered to Latinx workers. And then we were documenting not only kind of an initial application, but also follow-up calls were monitored And we saw that job offers made through these follow-up calls were even more biased in favor of Latinx workers who received nearly two times as many job offers as their Black counterparts. The only jobs that were offered to our Black testers at an equal or higher rate were the lowest-paying jobs and second third shifts at factories.
4: But this certainly doesn't mean Latinx workers have it easy.
8: At the same time, right, Latinx workers are being sought out for what Other studies have certainly exposed exploitation in the workplace. There's very dangerous working conditions at sub-minimum wages. I would say these are sweatshops. At one point, the Department of Labor defined modern-day sweatshops as having two or more violations of some basic labor standards. And I would say that's absolutely what we're seeing in these types of workplaces.
4: Brittany Scott says a culture of discrimination and retaliation means enforcement of labor protections for temp workers is extremely difficult, but there are some proposed solutions. One mentioned in the research is a temp agency seal of approval program, which would create incentives for companies that use temp labor to agree to basic standards.
8: And so the Seal of Approval program is really learning from what workers are doing in other industries in this kind of modern-day supply chain. And so I'm talking about the, the proven, effective enforcement model where we see power being shifted between workers and the companies at the top of supply chains.
4: Examples of this kind of enforcement organizing include the Coalition of Immokalee Workers and the Bangladesh Accord for Fire and Building Safety.
8: Similar to these established programs, the Seal of Approval program seeks to create market incentives for temp agency compliance by winning legally binding agreements with the biggest buyers of the brands that Temps in Chicago are producing, moving, and packing. In them, a brand name company or perhaps a public institution that's buying these products would agree to only produce or warehouse these products in factories and warehouses that agree to only use temp agencies that participate in the Seal of Approval program.
4: Ensuring public institutions and socially conscious businesses abide by temp worker standards creates market pressures compelling other companies to also adhere to the standards. Brittany Scott's research isn't just useful because of proposed organizing solutions like this seal of approval program. The research itself was an organizing opportunity, First, in the sense that the research work required collaboration with existing worker centers.
8: It really is a product of a many-year partnership with worker centers in Chicago that organize industrial temp workers in the Chicago metro. And, you know, temp workers and obviously the organizers who are receiving this kind of collective information from the different workers that they're in touch with, They've been saying for years that temp agencies have been doing this, right? They've been saying that, you know, they set up shop in Latinx neighborhoods, they're turning Black workers away, and so they're hearing these experiences, and they're definitely hearing the kind of racial antagonism that that stokes, right? This distrust of the the groups that, that they're being pitted against.
4: And this, of course, makes worker organizing difficult. Brittany Scott's research supports the organizing work by legitimizing the stories that workers and organizers communicate. So part
8: of doing this research was, you know, to get at that reality, to legitimize it in part because, you know, workers are saying it, I, you know, let's see if we can document that happening while doing a very, you know, rigorous um, and, and authentic, you know, methodology. And I think we, we did do that.
4: And this rigorous methodology also helped build relationships between workers.
8: The process was, you know, that they're riding around in a car together with an organizer uh, to these different job sites. You know, the Black worker goes in first, and then 15 minutes later, the Latinx worker goes in. Now, when they're doing their individual report backs for the sake of the research, they're not able to hear each other's experiences in that moment. Just that's out of necessity. But there are lots of opportunities for just relationship building in that process for, extended organizing one-on-one conversations with workers when you're driving around and you have a black worker and a Latinx worker, you know, in, in the car together who are who are matched in every other way. So it's like a very interesting opportunity.
4: This type of quantitative research is rare, if only because it takes time and resources to train workers as matched pairs. But that doesn't mean other temp worker research isn't being done.
8: But I definitely see a ton of really valuable qualitative research that is being done by the worker centers. And, and all of it is super important because these are the workers that are existing data sets miss. These are the workers who aren't being counted because of their undocumented immigration status, because of their like, you know, much more vulnerable position in the economy and the labor market. And so it is very valuable to get their experiences and to get their stories, because, you know, there are things that only they know, (laughs) things that outside monitors miss when they come in, that research misses when they aren't thinking about how do we reach these workers? How do we develop enough trust to talk to them? Or like, you know, worker centers are the ones that are developing trust, right? They're based in their communities. These are, you know, workers talking to other workers and have that level of trust
4: So, while research can reveal meaningful truths about our world, it can also act as a tool to help fix the problems it uncovers.
8: You know, making the connections between the temp agencies and the companies at the top is a very difficult task, and a lot of that information is going to need to come from putting together the the desk research (laughs) with workers' experiences and connecting those dots.
4: That's Brittany Scott. Senior Research Strategist at Partners for Dignity and Rights. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns.
0: We close with just one last Juneteenth celebration. This is Hymn to Freedom, pianist Oscar Peterson's 1962 ode to the Civil Rights Movement. After this original instrumental recording was released... Lyrics were written to the hymn's melody. When every man joins our song And together singing a harmony That's when we'll be free. that's our show for today. Monday Morning QB is produced by Chris Banger Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodwin. I'm Askiya Muhammad. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash Please stay safe. Thank you for listening and thanks for contributing to WPFW Washington and WBAI New York.